Fellow students, if you would turn uh, to 1 Samuel 15, I'm going to give you kind of a synopsis of 13 and 14, and then we'll spend the bulk of the time in, in uh, 1 Samuel 15. Give you kind of a bit of a historical context. The people of Israel have been governed by judges now for about 300 years, which is longer than most of us have been alive, although this morning I didn't feel that way. God's plan, yeah, I know most of you are going, I can relate to that. God's plan is to really unify the, the, the tribal confederation of Israel into a nation state. So they've been a loose confederation of tribes since Joshua died. And God's plan is to move them into a national enterprise with a centralized government. And he raised up Samuel, the last judge and the first prophet, to help Israel transition from a tribal confederation into a nation state. Quite a tall order. Israel has demanded a king. They're a little ahead of God's schedule here. God had intended them to have a king, but God's king was going to be David, and they demanded and got Saul, so Samuel anointed Saul, and now God has given Israel some military victories underneath Saul. So it seems to be working out fairly well. Chapter 13 of 1 Samuel has got to be one of the saddest chip chapters in Israel's history. They've been invaded by the Philistines, and the invasion was so complete that the people of Israel literally abandon their homes, they abandon their lands, and they hide in thickets, in caves, in cliffs, in cellars, and it says they even hide in holes in the ground. That's how scared they were, and that's how many Philistines were in the land. There's apparently 6,000 chariots, and back in the days, a chariot was kind of the tank. It was the, you know, the guerrilla warfare, the mechanized warfare medium, and to have 6,000 chariots in a country the size of Israel was a pretty heavy-duty invasion. So some of the Israelites even desert the land. They cross over to the east side of the Jordan River into Gilead. They literally leave Dodge at that point in time. So it's been a very, very bad time. Now Samuel, three years before, had warned Saul that this was going to happen. Saul has been king now for about three years. He's brand new king. We talked last week about his victory over the Ammonites. But Samuel said to Saul, this is going to happen. And when this occurs... I want you to go to Gilgal and I want you to wait seven days. There's an appointed time. There's an appointed time for a sacrifice. I'm going to come to you at the end of seven days. We'll offer a sacrifice to God. God will tell us what to do at that point in time. So Saul has a pre-appointed time to wait for Samuel for seven days. He knows this. They're in a national crisis. Saul's got a very small army. Saul, Saul's army is deserting him. His small army is getting smaller by the day. Now I want you to picture the scene at this point in time. Saul probably has 3,000 soldiers. The Philistines have 6,000 chariots plus all the infantry. So the, the, the odds are not good, you know, to say the least at that point. I'm sure that Saul's advisors are saying, do something. Do anything. But don't just sit. What did Samuel tell Saul to do? Wait. Do nothing, wait. That's very hard for us to do because we, especially in America, are, we have a bias toward action. I really have a bias toward action. When in doubt, I will act, even when probably I shouldn't. And God told Saul, you wait. On the seventh day, Saul waited until 2.30 in the afternoon about 30 minutes before the time of the evening sacrifice. That's when the evening sacrifice occurred, 3 p.m. 9 a.m., 3 p.m. 30 minutes to go to wait for Samuel. He couldn't wait any longer. 
He took matters in his own hands. He offered the sacrifice himself. And lo and behold, at the time he had finished the sacrifice, who shows up? Samuel walks in and says, what have you done? And Saul, of course, like many people in our culture, resorts to situation ethics. He says, here's the situation. Here's the circumstances. The people are deserting me. You didn't come on time. Not true. The Philistine army is assembling more and more people all the time. I haven't asked God's blessing by means of a sacrifice. By the way, that was the whole point of the sacrifice, to ask God's blessing and direction. And so I forced myself to offer the sacrifice. The situation I was in justifies my disobedience to your explicit command. And I'm sure none of your children have ever said that to you. They've never justified their disobedience, have they? Have you ever justified disobedience? Uh-huh, yeah, we're very good at this. Saul tells, Samuel tells Saul that his disobedience has disqualified him and his family from ruling over Israel. Here is the principle that's found in chapter 13, verse 11 to 14. If you want to know where this is from, it's chapter 13, 11 to 14. Here's the principle. You will never accurately understand your circumstances until you understand them from God's perspective. You will never accurately understand your circumstances until you understand them from God's perspective. When Saul refused to wait on God's time, what he was telling God is that he knew better than God. Saul was seeing his circumstances from his point of view, not God's point of view. The story is told of an old farmer in China whose horse ran away, an old horse. All the villagers, his villagers expressed their sorrow as bad luck and the farmer just said, who knows, we'll see. Two days later, the old horse comes back with 12 younger, healthier horses with him. The villagers say, what luck? The old farmer says, who knows, we'll see. The next morning, his son tries to ride one of the horses, falls off and breaks his leg. The villagers say, what bad luck? The farmer says, eh, who knows, we'll see. The next week, a war broke out and all the able-bodied young men in the village are drafted for military duty, but the son with a broken leg is exempted. The villagers say, what luck? The old farmer says, who knows? We'll see. His son recovers, but now he has a permanent limp. The villagers say, bad luck. The farmer says, who knows? We'll see. The war takes the lives of all able-bodied young men and the villagers, and the farmer and his son farm the village lands, and they grow rich, prosperous, and generous. The villagers say, how fortunate you are. The old farmer says, who knows? We'll see. The point of the story is not to emphasize the passivity of the farmer, but it's to illustrate our inability to see the big picture from our own limited perspective. What we think is a curse today, we may well view as a blessing tomorrow. This week, I promise you, in the next 167 hours until I see you again, Lord willing, every single one of you will encounter circumstances. Yes? How many of you are going to have circumstances this week? Yeah? And most of the time, this week, we will evaluate those circumstances based on what? Our own point of view, which of course is right. Because it is ours, right? However, 
Our Heavenly Father, who loves us, is not limited by our circumstances. As a matter of fact, He controls our circumstances and uses them for our good, especially the ones we don't like. Amen? Romans 8, 28, you all know it. And we know that God causes how many things? This week, many of us are going to have to underline that word all. Because we're going to be tempted to say, and God causes most, but not this circumstance to work together for my good. Right? That's the point. You know the most important, ver most important word in this verse? <clears throat> and we know. If you don't know, you won't live it. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. That's you, the called according to his purpose. Now, this is not a promise of pain-free circumstances. Sometimes this working together for our eternal good is very painful. Very painful. And we're tempted to reject God as unloving because God allows hardships and sorrows into our life. We do not understand how this present pain, this present suffering, this present circumstance could possibly work out for our ultimate joy, but our Heavenly Father does. And He's trustworthy. At the end of the day, whose understanding will you trust? What does Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 say? Trust in the Lord with part of your heart and lean somewhat on your own understanding. Is that what it says? What does it say? It says, you're not nearly as smart as you think you are. That's what it really says. That's the Hannock version, right? It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and you ain't as smart as you think you are. Do not lean on, do not put your weight on, do not use as a crutch your own understanding, right? Because your own understanding is what? Limited. We live in space and time. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but our Heavenly Father does. The corollary is in all your ways, right? How many is that? All. It means tomorrow you're going to have circumstances. That's all your ways. Tomorrow you're going to say, Lord, I'm going to trust your, your hand in my circumstances and all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. So submit your limited understanding of your, of your, your limited perspective to God's eternal plan and trust in me when you understand. Saul did not do that. Here's the, the part that tears your heart out. He only blew it by 30 minutes. 30 minutes. I can't wait another 30 minutes. Wow. The Lord looks at me and says, Brad, sometimes I have trouble with five minutes with you. We're not even talking 30 minutes. Okay? Between Samuel, 1 Samuel 13 and 1 Samuel 15, where we're going today, there's 23-year time span. So there's a 23-year history between chapter 13 and chapter 15. Chapter 13, we've got this little ragtag army of 3,000 soldiers. Chapter 15, we've got a disciplined and trained fighting force. And there's no record of God saying anything to Samuel about Saul for 23 years. Has God ever been quiet in your life for 23 years? Fortunately, no. Because if you went to the service this morning, you understand that we have what? The indwelling Holy Spirit. If you didn't go to that service, you better make sure you go to 11. Off the charts. Chapter 15, verse 1. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Why did he have to tell Saul to listen to the words of the Lord? He had a habit of not listening, right? Yeah, a lot of habit. 
Saul has no idea that the supreme test of his life is going to show up in this chapter. No idea. God's going to give Saul an opportunity to prove his faithfulness despite his fast failures, and he's going to have to ask the question, am I going to obey God or am I not going to obey God? It's kind of like us. We have no idea from day to day what tests will bring. So God gives Saul a very clear command. Chapter 15, verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts. That's the Lord of armies. That's the supreme sovereign commander. When you see the Lord of hosts, he's saying, I'm in charge. I am completely in charge. Verse 2, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against Israel on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Verse 3, now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all, you can underline that in your Bible, that he has. Do not spare him, but put to death both men and women, child and infant, oxen, sheep, camel and donkey. Whoa! Now, who's Amalek? The Amalekites are descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother, Genesis 36. They're a nomadic desert tribe. They're a very cruel and rapacious tribe of robbers, long history of making raids into southern Israel. During the Exodus, when Israel was coming up out of Egypt in the wilderness on the way to the Promised Land, Amalek had attacked them from the rear. They had a lot of stragglers. They had women and children and elderly and, and uh, infirm that were weak with hunger. And Amalek just came up behind and slaughtered them, the, the innocents and the, the weak and the, and the stragglers. They had continued to behave this way for centuries in the, in the promised land, and they were really abominable sinners, and God had been patient with them for centuries, and now God says, I'm devoting them to destruction. I, am, I want you to leave nothing alive, man, woman, child, animal, nothing. Now, for our contemporary culture, this is really hard to swallow, because our contemporary culture teaches the virtue above all other virtues is Tolerance. You tolerate everything, including and maybe especially evil. All is to be tolerated. As a matter of fact, nothing is evil. As a matter of fact, to tolerate evil is like taking swimming lessons with a family, a friendly family of hungry crocs. You can do it, but pretty high risk. See, evil will kill you. Evil will kill a culture. We've talked in this class for years that when you turn your back and walk away from God, sin makes you stupid. And the further you walk away from God, the stupider you become, right? So when you look at the culture be literally coming apart at the seams, what do you conclude? We've been walking away from God and we're now reaping the consequences of what walking away from God produces. Very, very predictable. God says, I'm done I've been patient with these people for centuries. Now, 2 Peter tells us that God is patient and merciful with evil because he wants to give evil people what? Time to repent. He's not willing that any should perish. He wants all to come to knowledge. So God tolerates evil for centuries. How long has he tolerated evil in your life? Your whole life. Right? Same with me. He's done it with our nation for 200 plus years. However, there comes a day when God says, I'm going to take this cancer, we're going to surgically remove it. We're done. It's time. Verse 4. Then Saul summoned the people, numbered them at Talaim, 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. That's a wadi. <clears throat> number of wadis where they, um, you have uh, flash floods. 
Verse 6, And Saul said to the Kenites, by the way, the Kenites were a friendly people. Actually, Moses' father-in-law was a Kenite. He'd married a Kenite. And they were always friendly to Israel. Saul told these people, Go, depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Verse 7, So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah up there by Lake Isabella. As you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. <clears throat> That's a long way across the ocean. And he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the age of the sword. So you look and you say, well, looks like Saul begins well. He sets an ambush. He warns the innocent uh, Kenites to leave, get out of Dodge so they won't get uh, slain in the battle. He thoroughly defeats the enemy in battle, kills the wicked people as God commanded. And verse 9 begins with a word in Scripture that breaks your heart. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they allowed to destroy. So in contrast to God's command to destroy everything, Saul and the people decided what portion of God's command they were going to obey and what portion of God's command they were going to disobey. Here's a basic principle I've known you've told your children. Partial obedience is complete disobedience. Write it down. Partial obedience is complete disobedience. Here's the principle. Being partially obedient to God is like being partially faithful to your spouse. Being faithful 99% of the time is unfaithful. Yes? Yes. How many of you could live with 1% infidelity? With joy? I don't think so. Being partially obedient is like being partially faithful. You know, obedience is one of those binary choices. Either you are pregnant or you are not, right? There's never a little bit pregnant, right? In direct obedience to God's command, Saul and the people decide to spare the king and the best of the animals. Now, what did God say about this whole group? Everything there is evil. Destroy it all. Saul said, not all of it's evil. We're going to spare some of what's good. Now, if God calls it evil and you call it good, who do you think's right? Yep. Here's what we don't understand unless we understand the flow of biblical history. A number of centuries later, because of Saul's failure to exterminate the Amalekites, an Amalekite named Haman conspired to exterminate the entire Jewish race in Persia when Esther was queen. God knew that Satan was going to use Haman the Agagite, this guy's relative, to try and kill a nation that was going to give birth to what? The Messiah, Jesus Christ. Satan wanted no Messiah because that Messiah was going to bruise his head and ultimately save the human race. <clears throat> so if there's no Jesus, if there's no Messiah, there's no salvation, there's no heaven for anyone. And Satan wanted that to happen, obviously. God knew that was going to happen and he knew this race needed to be exterminated and Saul decided to disobey. See, we don't understand that our disobedience today has consequences tomorrow, right? You know what the really good news is? 
When you do what's right today, when you obey today, that also has consequences tomorrow and the next day. So what you do, good or bad, matters for extended centuries down the road. Matter of fact, you're here because some relative of yours probably upstream a few centuries was faithful to carry the gospel. It might have been a relative, but somebody was faithful to pass the gospel on, so you got it. And your being faithful means that other people are going to have the gospel in centuries from now. People will be coming to Christ because you are faithful. See, we don't see that, but God does. God does. See, now, here's why Saul captured Agag. Saul captured Agag instead of killing him because he wanted the trophy. He wanted the trophy of his military skill. To have a captive king in your court, <clears throat> it's like having a grizzly, hair, grizzly bear head mounted on your wall. Man, it conveys bragging rights. You know, I got, hang on just a second then. Write, write the question down, catch me afterward. I don't want to forget it, but I'm, I'm, I'm moving pretty quick here. If you got a grizzly bear head mounted on your wall and you can't kill that grizzly bear, you got bragging rights. Saul had a live king in his court and it got him bragging rights. Now, who was going to get the glory then? Saul was going to get the glory instead of God getting the glory. Verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, you do not want God saying this about you. I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel is distressed and cried out to the Lord all night long. Now, when you see the word regret, this is not, oops, I made a mistake. God knows the future. God was not surprised. God knew this was going to happen from eternity past. This is human language describing God's sorrow over Saul's disobedience. And Samuel prays how long? For who? For Saul. And Saul was the character that the nation of Israel replaced him with 23 years before. I, would you say Samuel's a faithful guy? A ah, very faithful guy. Praying all night long, that's faithful. It says he was distressed. It comes from a Hebrew word meaning to burn, to burn. He's, he's really got a lot of righteous and holy anger and tremendous grief. He loves Saul. He was hoping Saul would be obedient. Saul's not obedient and Samuel is weeping and furious over sin and praying for Saul all night long. Verse 7, and Samuel rose early in the morning, I bet he did, to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he has set up a monument for who? Underline that. A monument for himself. Doesn't that just make you feel warm and fuzzy? And turned and proceeded down to Gilgal. Saul has stolen the glory that belonged to God. Who gave him the victory? God gave him the victory. And Saul setting up a monument for yourself. You know when you set a monument up for yourself, you know what that is? That's an act of self-worship. Anytime someone builds a monument to themselves, it's an act of self-worship rather than God-worship. And I know this, this is going to sound strange to your ears, but I thought about this yesterday, and you can, you can push back if you want. I think people do that all the time today. Some people worship their own image with thousands of selfies. By the way, there's nothing wrong with selfies. There's nothing wrong with Facebook. They're tools. They're wonderful tools of communication. Nothing wrong with social media. But when it's always and always and only about me, does that ever strike you as odd? 
I mean, if it's only about me and always about me, you know, Facebook monuments to me, aren't I wonderful? Once again, it's a tool. I'm not critiquing the tool. I'm critiquing its abuse. So this particular Carmel, by the way, is not Mount Carmel. It's a little vineyard about eight miles south of Hebron, way in the south. So they're going to meet. Verse 13, Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. And you're looking at Saul and you're going, one of two things, buddy. Either you're lying or you're delusional. Maybe both, right? So he says, I've carried out the command of the Lord. And he is either bald-faced lying or else his conscience is so corrupted now. He's so self-deceived. He really believes it to be the case. By the way, Saul has a really bad habit of talking instead of doing. He's always got words, but his works don't always match up to those words. Samuel says, verse 14, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Right? I mean, empirical evidence is kind of hard to hide, you know. You told me you carried out the command of the Lord, but if you carried out to the command of the Lord, there would be no flocks and herds of captured sheep. They'd all be slaughtered down south. So what, how come I'm hearing, you know, these animal sounds? Saul said, verse 15, this is leadership at its best. Quote, they, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. You know what this sounds like? Adam. God says, what have you done? He said, the woman you gave me, she made me sin. That's leadership, boy. I mean, you look and you go, you gunky, whatever. <laughs> I'm trying to be good here, folks. And give me some grace here, right? He's blaming somebody else for his own disobedience. They did it, not me, right? His excuse for disobeying God's command would be that the animals were to be sacrificed to God, right? He can't even say my God. It's Samuel's God. It's your God. Now I'm thinking, I'm going, do you have a relationship with God, number one? Or number two, are you so under conviction you can't say my God? It's interesting. Saving the best of the animals here is very self-serving. You have to understand the sacrificial system. When the Israelites sacrifice an animal to God at the temple, right? Part of that sacrificial meat went to the priest. But the biggest chunk went to the worshiper who brought it, right? You got to share a meal with God doing a peace offering. That's what this was. So the Israelites, they bring the sacrificial animal to God. They give the priest the shoulder and a couple of other things. Some gets burned, but the bulk of it they get to eat. They're not even sacrificing their own animals. They're sacrificing the animals of the Amalekites. This is called a free lunch, right? I'm serious. You know, if you didn't understand the sacrificial system, they would say, well, what's the big deal about sacrificing? Well, they get to eat about 80% of the animal. May not be exactly 80%, but okay. So there's a little, little self-serving nature in this, quote, sacrifice bit that they're saying. Samuel is tired of it, and he says to Saul, wait. In other words, stop. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul says, speak. 
Samuel basically says, enough of human words, enough of human opinion, enough of your excuses. Sometimes when we're in the presence of the Lord, as a matter of fact, most of the time I think, we should just close our mouth. And what? Open our ears. And Samuel said to Saul, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated? Verse 19. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Here's the principle, and I'm going to need to explain it. Maren gave me some perspective on this last night, but I'm going to put it on you just straight up on the rocks. Here's the principle. Anything that prevents me from obeying God needs to be destroyed. Anything that prevents me from obeying God needs to be destroyed. Now, virtually 100% of everything that prevents you from obeying God is not anything outside you. It's not the government. It's not your neighbors. It's not another religious group. It's not another, you know, racial group. Who is the biggest problem with your obedience to God? It's in here. It's inside. I'm not talking about destroying an external opposition to your worshiping God. It's inside us. When Saul was anointed king, he was so humble that he literally thought he was unworthy to rule over the nation. Now he's so full of pride that he can disobey Almighty God and justify it. In verse 19, Samuel puts his finger on the motive. You say, why would, why would Saul disobey like this? I mean, he clearly had no problem killing people in warfare. He puts, Samuel puts his finger on it when he says, why did you not obey the Lord, but, underline this, rushed upon the spoil? When they say rushed upon the spoil, that, that literally means swooped down on the spoil. It refers to a bird of prey. A bird of prey that is swooping down on its prey. It's like a peregrine falcon. A peregrine falcon, when it goes into a stoop, it dives on its prey and it gets up to almost 200 miles an hour when it goes into a stoop. Now that's really, really fast in pursuit of prey. So Saul and the people were motivated by greed. They looked at the flocks and the herds and the animals, I mean thousands of them, and they didn't want to destroy them in obedience because they were greedy. They wanted to bring them back. They wanted to enhance their own wealth, their own flocks and herds at that point in time. Samuel says, your greed led you into disobedience. You know what this reminds me of? Achan. Remember Achan? Children of Israel come into the, into the land, and the very first city they capture is what? Jericho, right? And they walk around the city seven times, and God says, I'm going to deliver the city in your hand, but here's the condition of, of the victory. Everything in that city is under the ban, which means everything in the city is devoted to God. Everything in the city belongs to God, and Achan saw a very nice Persian chunk of cloth, and he saw some silver, and he saw a slab of gold, and it said he coveted. He wanted it, and he took it. And what happened as a result of having sin in the camp? They came to the next city of Ai. They got beat. Joshua falls on his face, and God says, there's sin in the camp. I do not bless where there is sin in the camp. You must deal with us at that point in time. 
Achan wound up getting stoned for it. Here's what's stupid about this. The very next city they captured, God told them, everything in the city you can have yourself. All he had to do was wait one more battle, but Achan couldn't wait, right? He saw the gold, he had to take it. Even though God said, everything in that city belongs to me. What did Saul do? Same thing. God said, everything in the camp of the Amalekites is mine. Saul said, I want some of that for myself. Greed is a very powerful emotion, covetousness. Interesting, covetousness is the very last commandment in the 10, right? Thou shalt not covet. As a matter of fact, when you commit adultery, you're coveting. When you steal, you're coveting. When you bear false witness, you're coveting the approval of man, right? Coveting is a very subtle emotion. It wants something that is not ours. And it leads us into disobeying. It's interesting. When you spare something that God wants destroyed, you are telling God, move over, I want your throne. Disobedience is always an act of treason. Disobedience is always an act of treason. You are telling God, I want the throne and I know better than you do. Here's the question. God told Saul to destroy and Saul decided to spare. Is there anything in your life that you're hanging on to that God wants to destroy? Just think about it. An attitude, an action. Are you coveting anything that is getting in the way of your obedience? For many of us, it would probably be it could be any number of things, but one of the things we love in our contemporary culture is our comfort. We constrain our obedience by our comfort. As long as it's comfortable and it's convenient, especially, then obedience is okay. But if it's uncomfortable or inconvenient, mm, Lord, are you sure? Verse 20. Saul says to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. I went on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought back Agag, king of the Amalekites. I've uttered to destroy the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoiled sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things, devoted to destruction, to sacrifice, and the murder of God. This is the second time in four verses that Saul has lied about obeying God. The second time he's blamed the people, and it's the second time he's excused his sin by saying, God, you know that stuff we stole from you? Those flocks and herds that were yours, the stuff that we stole, we're, we're going to sacrifice it, right? We're going to sacrifice it. He wanted to do a deal. He wanted to bargain with God. God, I'll kill all the Amalekites if you let me spare my bragging rights, my trophy, the king, and keep, me, and keep the best of the stuff, right? You know anybody who's ever tried to bargain with God? God, let's make a deal. None of you have ever done that, right? I knew. I knew. I knew you were good. I'm telling you. No, we've all done it. We've all done it. Saul was not a leader. Saul said, if there's any sin here, it's not on me, it's on the people. I obeyed, but the people under my leadership, they disobeyed, but I'm innocent. Saul is not a leader, he's a follower, and he's a tool of the people. Saul has become a politician whose policies are created by opinion polls. Sound familiar? 
One of the things that is sad is that the vast majority of what passes for leadership today is simply people saying, oh, there's a parade. I've got to get in front of it because I'm their leader. No, a leader says, thus says the Lord, this is where we're going. If people follow you, they follow you. They don't, they don't, but you follow the Lord. Saul was not following the Lord. He was a politician. He wanted the approval of the people. And he blamed them when things went wrong. Verse 22 is really the heart of this message in many ways. And Samuel, he's now confronting Saul. Saul's been making excuses. Saul has been lying. Saul has been justifying. Saul has been blaming others for his disobedience. And he's had a pattern of this. Verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. That's what they offered on the altar. Verse 23, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, witchcraft, and insubordination as iniquity and idolatry. Here's the principle. The condition of your heart determines the value of your sacrifice. The condition of your heart determines the value of your sacrifice. What is given in love is priceless. What is given in pretense is worthless. Saul had been disobedient to God over and over again, but he wanted to buy God's favor by means of a sacrifice. Even though he didn't love the Lord and he wasn't obedient, the external sacrifice he thought he could paper over his disobedience, right? Loving obedience from the heart is more important than external sacrifice. Let me give you an example. Saul is like the guy who's cheating on his wife. But he brings her flowers because he thinks his sacrifice will make it all better. Does that help? Get the picture? She doesn't want the flowers. She wants his heart on the barbecue. <laughs> the flowers only have value when? If they come from the heart. If the heart's not there, the flowers are meaningless. Until he changes his cheating heart, the flowers are worthless. They're a hypocrisy and she knows it. It's like the dad that tells his teenage son to mow the lawn, right? You got to mow the yard, but you got company coming over tonight. The son decides that he's not going to mow the lawn, but instead he's going to wash dad's car because he wants to take his girlfriend out that night, right? The car wash sacrifice does not compensate for the disobedience to mow the lawn, right? Have we ever done this to the Lord? Lord, um, I'm going to um, I'm going to come to church. I'm going to give my offerings. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to sing in the choir, and you can have Sunday, baby, all of it. But on Monday morning, it's just business. It's just business, man. Right? I mean, I'm out in the world six days a week, so I got to live like them. But Sunday is yours. We compartmentalize things. Very easy to do. I, you don't. I know, none of you do. But those other people, the ones that aren't here today, they do. Right? <laughs> there is no substitute for your heart. There is no substitute for obedience from the heart. There's no substitute for loving the Lord your God. 
See, God commands us to obey him, not because he doesn't love us, but because he does love us and because he knows what's best for us. When we obey, we experience blessing. God says disobedience is so serious, I liken it to witchcraft. I liken it literally to rebellion, to idol worship. Because witchcraft, idol worship, and disobedience all represent man trying to take control. Man trying to overthrow God. Man trying to sit on the throne to be God. Have, have we been doing this for a few centuries? Ever since Adam and Eve decided they knew better than God did. So Saul is basically saying, if I give you enough sacrifice, then I can be disobedient in my heart and it's okay. God says, no. Either I have your heart or all the sacrifice doesn't mean anything. Does that make sense? You with me? The last phrase of verse 25. I'm sorry, 23. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Wow. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, the only time Saul, quote, confesses is when he sees the consequences of his disobedience, right? Exactly. Now, it's interesting, this little word that Saul uses for transgression. If you translate that word in English, you know what it means? Overlooked. Overlooked. It's, yeah, right. I overlooked a small portion of your command, Lord. What God calls rebellion and insubordination and treason, Saul calls just a small oversight. Right? Just small oversight. They have a little different opinion about what that sin looks like, right? Saul is minimizing his sins. He's, not, he's remorseful, but he's not repentant. Saul doesn't hate the sin. He hates the consequences of the sin. He didn't even say, I have sinned, until he found out that it was going to cost him the kingdom. That's a pretty severe consequence, wouldn't you say? Pretty severe. He wants the approval of man more than the approval of God. This is really tough for us in our culture because we live in a culture where gathering the approval of men is as simple as saying, I want more likes on my Facebook page. Right? I know I'm meddling now. But it's very, very, you have to be real careful with that. We have teenagers in our culture that literally commit suicide because they don't have enough likes on their Facebook page. That is heartbreakingly sad. We want the approval of man more than the approval of God. What Saul wanted, he wanted the people's praise that belonged to God. Saul wanted that praise for himself. God says, that's rebellion. You want to take my throne over and that's not good for you or my people. Verse 25, Saul says, now therefore, please pardon my sin and return to me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Verse 27, and as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of Samuel's robe and it tore 
Verse 28, so Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Here's the, here's the principle. And this one terrifies me. Even though the penalty of sin was paid for at the cross, the consequences of sin can last a lifetime. My father smoked for probably 55 years. He knew he was trash in the temple of the Holy Spirit. He smoked for 55 years until it killed him. Even though you can confess to God and you can quit smoking after 40 years, you still may have to live with COPD, right? And you can be forgiven. But the consequences of our sinful choices can last a lifetime. By the way, the consequences of your obedient choices also last a lifetime. So it's a really, it's a very powerful principle. I may be divorced, forgiven completely by God, restored, but still have to live with a scar tissue. Even though it's not my fault. I may be harmed through the sin of another like a drunk driver who chooses to drink and drive and does me and my family extensive damage, they may confess, they may be forgiven by God, but both of us have to live with the consequences of that sin for how long? Forever. Many of us in this room are living with scar tissue. Some of it through our decisions, some of it through others' decisions. Some of us are legitimately Innocent, but we still live with the scar tissue of other people's choices, other people's sin. Saul had repeatedly rebelled against God and it cost him the ability to serve as God's shepherd over God's people. And Samuel says, this decision is final. It's irrevocable. I'm not going to change my mind. God is not fickle. God makes up his mind. He doesn't have to make a change in decision because he does it right the first time. This is where we are, and this is why we are grateful at God's amazing grace, who despite our sins, despite bad choices that we make, and despite bad choices other people make, we are still forgiven. And after forgiveness, you know what I'm most grateful for? Pastor Roger talked about this morning. We have God in us. We have the Holy Spirit in us. You have God, the third member of the Trinity, living in you every day, guiding you, protecting you, reminding you of what the Word says, rebuking you when you need it, encouraging you when you need it, and the Lord can give us victory even in a broken world. Do we live in a broken world? Amen. We live in a breaking world. It seems to be breaking bad more every day. And the reality is, is we can live victorious in this despite the consequences of people's sinful choices. Forgiveness is full and complete. But in this world, when other people sin or we sin, forgiveness does not necessarily mean the consequences disappear. Does that make sense? I wish I could tell you happily ever after. Now the good news is happily ever after is coming, right? We call that heaven. It's coming. That's why we should be looking up. But even with the brokenness today, we have victory in Jesus because we have God himself living us as the third member of the Trinity. Verse 30, Saul said, I have sinned. Please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me and I worship the Lord your God. They were going to worship together before the nation. That's what the, the king and the prophet did. 
So Saul just admitted, I've sinned because I, I, I really was concerned with people's opinion of me. But by the way, go back now and worship with me so that I can save face before those people. Yeah. So Samuel went back from following Saul. Saul worshiped the Lord. Samuel may have worshiped with Saul even when he was disobedient because he wanted God to receive glory despite Saul's disobedience. Verse 32. This is going to sound strange to your ears. I'll just warn you. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully and said, surely the bitterness of death is past because he knows Saul wants to keep him alive as a trophy. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so this guy would kill children in front of moms, so your mother shall be made childless among women. And Samuel cut Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. That is a picture of how God feels about sin. He's going to destroy it. He's going to destroy it. Even though Saul refused to carry out God's command, Samuel didn't. He obeyed God. And you know, when, you, when we read this, listening to our contemporary ears and our sensibilities, we're like, oh, you know, cut this guy to pieces as he had cut children to pieces. Interesting question I would have is how uncomfortable are you willing to become in obeying God? How uncomfortable are you willing to become if God commands you to do something? Verse 34. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went to his house at Gibeah of Saul, and verse 35. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. For Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. What's interesting, Saul and Samuel never saw each other again. You know how far apart Ramah and Gibeah are? Five miles. Five miles. Never saw each other again. When you follow Jesus and others refuse to follow Jesus, you can't be BFF. You can't be best friends forever, folks. It's not going to work. You serve different gods. They are on the broad path and you're on the narrow path. They're moving away from God and you're moving toward God. When it says God regretted, it doesn't mean he made a mistake. It's an expression of his emotion. God is sorrowful over Saul's sin because sin causes God intense sorrow. That's why he sent Jesus the Son to redeem us from that. And that's why we have hope in the middle of a broken world and our world is broken. We have hope that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, even in this situation. I was so grateful that pastor led us in corporate prayer this morning because this nation needs prayer. This world needs prayer. This world needs Jesus. Okay, let me review. We will never accurately understand our circumstances until we understand them from God's perspective. Number two, being partially obedient to God is like being partially faithful to your spouse. Being faithful 99% of the time is unfaithful. Anything that prevents me from obeying God needs to be destroyed. When you read that, look in the mirror and look at your own heart. Number four, the condition of your heart determines the value of your sacrifice. What you give God in love is priceless. What you give God in pretense is worthless. And lastly, even though the penalty of sin was paid for at the cross, the consequences of sin can last a lifetime. 
Praise God for forgiveness. Praise God the Holy Spirit can even give us victory in the middle of that. Okay, do you have enough to work on for the next few hours? Okay, all right. Now that you know, do. I love you guys. Read ahead.